1: Well, welcome to you who are here today, and those of you joining us uh, from home or wherever you get this broadcast, we welcome you today. Uh, So good to see you, and I mean that sincerely, I'm not just blowing smoke. Let me ask you a quick question. How many of you like to make choices? Seriously, how many of you enjoy making choices? Okay, the reality, a couple, Lynn Andres, of course she does. See, you crack the whip, girl. You go at it, right? So, most of us, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make an assumption, and that's really dangerous because you shouldn't do that very often, but most of us probably do not like to make choices. Um, have you ever, uh, here's a scenario: Have you ever been in a car with your family or friends, and you've decided, we're gonna go out to eat today, and you say, So, where do you wanna go? I don't care. I mean, the joke, you know, the joke that's been around forever, right? I'm going I'm to invent or found a restaurant called I Don't Care, so that that's the title of it, and the cuisine will be whatever, right? That's exactly, every item on there will be just titled whatever, and so you just get whatever comes to your, to your uh, table. We often, as the Linharts, there's six of us in our family, my wife and I, three girls and a boy, and... Um, especially on special occasions when we're going out for a birthday or something. It's usually the birthday boy or girl's uh, choice to choose where we go. Now, more often than not, we, we end up solidifying where we're going to go. But uh, it, it's like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, one of these three places or this or that. Just pick a place. Just pick it. What about a decision to make if you should go somewhere or stay home, right? Most of you stay home, Right. Well, we have kids at home that one of two choices um, or either one or a good choice, right? You, you ever make choices between things that are really innocuous? And it's really the choice is truly yours to which there's no right or wrong answer. It's just you make this choice. You're going to do this or this. You ever go to the, uh, to the chip aisle in the grocery store or the cereal aisle in the grocery store? How many choices do you have? Right? Well, you have a lot. Do you know to not make a choice is to make a choice? Actually, that's not something that I came up with. The American philosopher William James, who lived during the later part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, said, when you have to make a choice and you don't make it, it itself is a choice. And that's true, Right? I see a lot of people not making choices their whole life and they come to the end of their life not making choices only to have made a choice to not make the choice to be where they are. Does that make sense? That's a philosophical thing. Take that to the bank. American pastor from about the same time period as William James by the name of Harry Fosdick wrote this. He said, he who chooses the beginning of a road chooses the place to which it leads It is the means that determine the end, and not the end that determine the means. So you you start off in this direction, it's gonna ultimately end up somewhere, right? The choice you choose for the path you take has consequences. We come to a passage today, we've spent most of this, well actually we've spent all of this, the first part of this year, all the way through March, in the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is where we will be today. And this is right before the Israelites enter what we call the promised land or what's known as the promised land in the Old Testament. If you wanna know where that is on a modern day map, it would be where Israel currently is on the map. Now the territory is a little bit different, but that's the general vicinity of this. And so the Israelites had never settled the land, nor were they a nation at this point, but they were coming in to settle the land after they had wandered in the wilderness, being disciplined by God, And you can read about that in the book of Numbers. They're now, that generation has died off after 40 years, and the younger generation is getting ready to cross over the Jordan River and go into this land of promise. And so Moses has some final instructions. And listen to what he says. In chapter 30, we're gonna start with verse 11. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Moses says, this command I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you. And it's not beyond your reach. Well, wait a minute. Why would you start there, Brandon? Because we should know the command, shouldn't we? Well, that's what the whole sermon's going to be on. All right? So I'm giving you what he's stating should happen, the command that he has given. Actually, it's not the command that Moses has given. It's the command that God gave for Moses to give the people. So he says, this command I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you and is not beyond your reach it's not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask who will go up to heaven and bring it down so that we can hear it and obey it's not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask who will cross the sea to bring it to us so that we can hear it and obey no the message is very close at hand and is on your lips and in your heart so that you can obey it last week we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and we kind of unpacked well what is that command what is that command Actually, there were a handful of commands called the Ten Commandments given by God in Exodus chapters 19 to 20, and also in the first couple chapters of Deuteronomy. And so when we get to Deuteronomy 6, what Moses is telling them at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy is you need to tell your children and let their children tell their children about the law of God about the commands and the teachings of God. And so the whole book is really unpacking these commands and teachings until you get to chapter 30, and he's finally exhausted the subject as much as he can with this new generation who's about to come into the promise. And he says, now, this command that I'm giving you is not too difficult for you. One of the things I love about God is that he doesn't overcomplicate things. And the irony is he is a very complicated being, not that he's difficult or mean, but that he is incomprehensible to the finite human understanding, okay? He is so far beyond our being able to encapsulate this idea of who he really is in his fullness that we can only see glimpses and parts of him. He has revealed himself to us through his word and through his creation. And so the commands that he gives us, which we'll be talking about in just a moment, are not complicated. It's like raising your kids, right? Don't walk in front of an oncoming car. Don't take a fork or a spoon or a knife and stick it in the outlet, in the wall. Don't touch the stove, right? It's not complicated. Why? Because if you do those things, it could lead to a severe harm or potential death, correct? Is this thing on? Okay, are you you guys with me? I wanna tell you something. If you come to the Bible and you begin to unpack it and you think, wow, this is way too overcomplicated, You need to study it with somebody because I promise you they'll point to you the clarity of God's word and show you that it's not as complicated as it might seem. See, God doesn't try to complicate matters for us. As a matter of fact, everywhere you see God showing up on the scene, whether it's with an individual he's calling into service or whether it's judgment or whatever comes, it's very clear what his expectations are. He's he's not like, Given us a vague set of rules that we don't understand or a vague set of commands or teachings that we don't understand so that we're always wandering blind, not knowing when we're going to step on one of those landmines. The enemy's like that, who we call Satan, the devil. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He's crafty. He knows how to trip us up. He knows how to confuse matters. Who is the author of confusion? The scripture tells us it's not God. It's the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And so the question is, if you stand confused, how are you finding clarity? Or are you trying to find clarity? I've been teaching a class on Sunday mornings and actually Teaching it is not what I really do. Sarah and I, who are co-teaching the class, actually just unpack what the speaker is talking about on the videos. It's called The Truth Project. And he really buries in and digs into the theology and the philosophies surrounding the Christian worldview. And he talks about subjects like science. And you would think, oh, it's about, you know, just believe in Jesus and all go well. don't you dare question him. No, it's about really digging in and trying to understand this whole idea that God is some mysterious person out there that cannot be known and doesn't want to be known is trying to make it complicated on us and that if we dare question him, he's going to strike us dead is a fallacy, is a falsehood. You will never hear me teach you or preach from this stage. Don't ever question God. Why? Because I believe he is truth. And if truth really is truth, you should be able to question it and it should be able to remain standing on the platform that it says it is. Correct? And I said this to the class this morning. If you ever hear a teacher, a preacher, or anybody, any Christian leader say, you just gotta believe and you don't need to, qu- you shouldn't even question, do not listen to that teacher or preacher. Do you hear me? And I mean that sincerely. This is where Christianity in our Western culture has gone off the tracks because we're afraid of the questioning process because of our own doubts. That's really where where it's rooted in, I believe. You see, Moses is saying, this command I give you, this command that God is giving us is not complicated. And And one of the things the religious leader, you know, flash forward centuries to the time that Jesus comes onto the scene. Jesus, God in the flesh, the embodiment of truth, Emmanuel, God with us. He stands now when he came onto the scene in complete contradiction to the religious leaders because the religious leaders of Jesus' day, what did they do? They took the law of God and they said, Really, what is murder? What is adultery? What do we do as humans? When when there's a law, what do we try to do? We gotta find a loophole, right? When we go to the point of trying to find loopholes in laws, what are we doing? We're complicating the law. How many laws are on the books in the, just the federal government, not the state or the local government, but in the federal government, how many laws are on the books? It feels like millions. I don't know. But you could go into a library, into the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and look at every federal law there is, and it fills volume after volume after volume after volume after volume because we have to figure out What truly is freedom of speech? Freedom of religion. Now, we don't don't have the Ten Commandments. Well, actually, we do have the Ten Commandments as the basis for our Constitution, our Bill of Rights. But they're not written in there. Our Bill of Rights basically are our commands for how our nation is built. But rooted in a Judeo-Christian value. They were basic. Have you ever read the Constitution before? it's short i mean you can read it in like 5 to 10 minutes and even even if you're a slow reader okay from from those short little passages of the constitution and the bill of rights now we have volume after volume so now imagine jesus after centuries of jewish practice and jewish law and the commandments of God. How many volumes do you believe they have? Well, they had 613 by the end of Deuteronomy already. And then by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, the question is, you shall not, you shall not uh, break the break the Sabbath. You need to remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so what does it mean to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy? Well, you don't work on the Sabbath, right? You rest. What is rest? Well, then, all right, so in in Jewish custom, depending on specifically Orthodox Judaism, you cannot turn on a light switch on the Sabbath. Do you know that? If you are a strict Orthodox Jew, it is technically making a fire because of the electrical impulses that go through the lines to light the light bulb, which brings heat and also light. So on the Sabbath, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, you're not allowed to flip a light switch. Now, all right, so before light switches, you couldn't make a fire. You had to have your meals prepared the day before for the day of the Sabbath. You could not walk so many steps on the Sabbath because walking one step further than the allotment of steps was breaking the Sabbath because it was work. But by Jesus' time, this had become so absurd. It had become so crazy that when he and his disciples were walking through a field of grain and the, and the disciples are picking up heads of grain and rubbing it between their hands to get off the chaff so they could have the kernel of grain and start to eat it, the religious leaders saw Jesus' disciples doing this and are like, aha, they're harvesting on the Sabbath. <laughs> Do you catch the absurdity? And what does Jesus reply? Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. You guys missed the whole point of this. And you've added and tacked on all these extra rules. So what am I getting at here? I want you to get the full picture of what Moses is trying to help them understand as they come into the promised land. They are to live as a free people, unencumbered by a ton of baggage. They are given the freedom to inhabit the land that was already prepared. You remember last time? Deuteronomy 6? There were already cities there. There were already vineyards and fields. They didn't have to do anything. They just came in and inhabited the land. And you'll see if you read Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and you keep going through, if they had stayed faithful to God's commands, it would have been a lot easier, because he said it'll go well with you. You stick, stick with me, follow my lead, it's going to go okay. And they stuck with him to a point, but then they're like, well, let's tweak that a little bit. Let's tweak it a little bit more. Let's tweak it a little bit more. If you were flying to the moon on a rocket, SpaceX rocket, let's go with Elon Musk, you know. You're flying to the moon, but you were half a degree off when you left the launch pad. Did you get to the moon? No, you'd miss it. You would miss it. Why? Because even a slight deviation... From the course laid out is off track. It's not complicated. Even one one degree, half a degree off is off. Let me continue. Now, listen, verse 15. Today I'm giving you a choice. Ah, there's where our choice comes in. Today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. That's a good question. Life or death, what's the choice? Well, you would like to think so, wouldn't you? It seems like a simple choice, but we overcomplicate it. Verse 16, for I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. Whose ways? His ways, not ours, not the government's, not anybody else's ways, but by his ways. Okay, If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're about to enter and occupy. If you do what I've asked you to do, you will find life. If not, it's not gonna be good. Verse 19, today I've given you the choice between life and death. There it is again, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him and commending yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, Brandon, so it seems to me what you're telling me is based on this passage of scripture, it's all about doing the right things. If I just do and accomplish this set of rules, then I'm good. No. Because guess what? We have what the Israelites did not have we have hindsight, we have their whole history. And much like the Israelites, we are prone to failure, even on the simplest tasks laid out for us. It reminds me of, what is that, uh, Indiana Jones and the, the Holy Grail, choose wisely, right? There's only one choice. If you drink this cup, you'll live. The rest of the cups around there will lead to death. If you don't know that movie, I'm sorry for the absurd analogy. Here's the key point. God has given us a choice between life or death, and he wants us to choose life. Is it much different than, say, Genesis 1, 2, and 3? See, Adam and Eve in the garden. God plants all these different types of trees there. Within that garden, there's also a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God gives them one choice or one command. He says, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat it, you will die. It's a choice between life or death, right? They can, he didn't say, Don't eat of the tree of life. See, he said, Listen, <laughs> all of the fruit of all the trees in the garden are yours to eat. Just don't eat this one tree. You eat this one, you'll die. Do you see how uncomplicated that choice was? But then you have a serpent coming on the scene and saying, did God really say you can't eat from the fruit of the trees? Do you see the subtlety and the deception? No, God didn't say I couldn't eat from the fruit of the trees. Of course we could eat from the fruit of the trees. It's just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. can't even touch it or we'll die. You know what, here's the thing. If you eat of that, you won't die. Here's the thing. God knows that if you eat of that, you'll become like him, knowing both good and evil. God's withholding something from you. He's this cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want you truly to experience freedom. True freedom is doing the choice that he told you not to do. How many of you believe that now? How many of you hear that now in the culture? The church is just a bunch of homophobic, xenophobic, misogynistic, ableist, blah, blah, blah. I mean, to fill in the blank, there's all these new terms or all these old terms that have been resurrected now to call the church this evil, ogreish type people. And there are some, don't get me wrong. <laughs> the sad truth is that those, those true, evil, ogreish people within the church that are legalistic and hateful, are the ones that become, for whatever reason, the poster child for the true church. But see, that's what the enemy does. He elevates the falsehoods and diminishes the truth. The true church is leading people to freedom and saying, listen, yeah, if you make these choices, it will lead to death and destruction. But the choices of God truly lead to not just eternal life, but freedom. Freedom. So the two points I have really quickly are this. Life. Life. I didn't want to overcomplicate this sermon today. <laughs> Guess what the next point's going to be? You got it. You can go in and fill in that blank. Do not fall asleep on me. Do not turn off the TV or the computer. Life. Life. This command I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you. And it's not beyond your reach. It's not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask. Who will go up to heaven to bring it down to us so we can hear it and obey? It's not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask. Who will cross the sea and bring it to us so that we can hear it and obey? No, the message is close at hand and it's on your lips and it's in your heart so that you can obey it. I love that God doesn't set the bar so high that it's not so far out of reach. That's what he's saying here. You see, because we couldn't do it, Jesus comes onto the scene, God in the flesh. God says, they have failed miserably time and time again. I've given them, <laughs> I've given them over a 1,000 years to figure this out. Now in the grand scheme of eternity, a thousand years is nothing, but in, in human terms, a thousand years is a pretty big deal. And so after, when we, when we think God is not patient at all, he, he's a mean old hateful God of the Old Testament, he, he zaps people. My dad, before he got saved, he got saved two years before he died, always thought, well I can't step into the church because it'll cave in on me. I'm from Kentucky, that's exactly how he sounded. (laughs) Or, all the church wants is your money. Right? You will rarely hear me talk about money, and when I do, it's from a biblical perspective, but the reality is, my dad had a false perception of the church, and if there was a God, he can't really be that good, because he's mean. And you know where he got that? Because the family he grew up in did not live life. They did not point to a life giver. And I'm not blaming the extended family or his parents. He still ultimately had a choice to make. It wasn't his parents' fault. Or their parents' fault. Or their parents' fault. We all have a choice to make. But some of us seem to be set up from the very beginning with a lot of difficulty. It's not that it puts us at a disadvantage, but it puts us at a different perspective. And you have a choice of whether or not to stay in that perspective and allow it to rule and conquer you or to step into the perspective that God has given to say, listen, there's freedom here. There are rules to what I'm expecting, but there's freedom within these boundaries. And there's life within these boundaries. But you stay over there. It's going to lead to ultimate death. I don't want that for you. You see, when you go back to the garden, when God said, don't eat of this tree or you'll die, he's telling them, I don't want you to eat it because I want you to live with me in freedom forever. But they choose death. Why? Why do they choose death? because they believe that there's something more that they're not experiencing, and they believe the lie that if they just partake of that which they are told not to, that it'll give them some kind of special knowledge. And you know it did. It pulled the veil from their eyes to see what evil really is. Oh, to go back to that place where evil wasn't even a twinkle in the thought of an individual. It wasn't a thought. There were no temptations in the mind's eye. Can you imagine? The innocence, the sheer innocence and goodness of that. And then to have that pulled away to see what true evil really is. It's not in Adam's and Eve's, and not in Adam and Eve's case that ignorance was bliss. But ignorance truly in that case was freedom. And people ask me a lot, and this is way off the rails here, give me just a second. If we truly have freedom of choice this side of heaven, will we have freedom of choice in heaven? Because if God is good and God is loving, he won't take our choice away. So is there potential for sin and death in heaven? That's a good question. That's a logical question to ask. And I had to really mull that over for years because I didn't have an answer. It stumped me. And so until I came to the realization with a broader perspective of Scripture, and I realized Adam and Eve were perfect and without sin, and they chose that which God said not to do. And it was because of their ignorance. We are not like Adam and Eve were. We have a perspective that first off they didn't have. Do you do you catch where I'm going with this? So we have lived in a sinful, broken, and fallen world where there was death, disease, famine, where bad things happen to so-called good people or innocent people, right? We see this and we we just it, it wrenches us with, with just sheer pain and empathy for other people who go through really horrible things out of no fault of their own. I think what we don't have is the perspective that Adam and Eve had before the fall, what perfectness truly looks like. I think we get glimpses of it When we surrender our lives to Christ, the one who was truly and totally perfect, and when he comes into our lives and gives us a newness of life, I think we see glimpses of what perfectness looks like. We see hope. We see really what life is meant to be. But we live in this marred, broken, and terrible space for this time being. But when we cross over, whether it's through death or the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we see him face to face, and we feel fully know at that point and there are no questions to be had who would ever want to come back to this so yes is there freedom of choice i believe there is in heaven but why would you ever choose this when you've lived in it when you have that and it's perfect I, don't believe, I believe there's a possibility, but I believe that possibility is so minuscule that it becomes an improbability to an impossibility. That's how I've reasoned through this. Why would I ever choose to have anything other than the full engulfing presence of true, unadulterated love? Why would I ever wanna choose hate or distrust or dishonesty ever again? Why would I ever want to choose the possibility of betrayal or rejection ever again? Why would I ever want to choose something to shoot up into myself or to drink myself into oblivion because I have the greatest high I could ever have? I would never want to go back to that. Can you imagine what it must be like to live with no insecurity, no shame, no embarrassment? Can you imagine why would you want to go back to shame, embarrassment, and all of that? Choose life. So what are the commandments that Moses is telling them to choose? The only audible words that God gave by way of command, specifically to the Israelites in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, these were not Moses' words, not God's words through Moses. God told Moses to have the people consecrate and prepare themselves for a couple days. And he told them they couldn't go beyond a certain boundary around the mountain. Because he says, I'm going to speak to them directly. In Exodus chapter 19, you can read this. Pretty amazing. And God speaks to them from the mountain. God can't be contained by a mountain But he speaks from the mountain, just as he spoke to Moses in Exodus 3 from a burning bush. And as he spoke from that mountain to mountain, the Ten Commandments, directly from his own lips, there was no question as to whether or not the message could be trustworthy because it was directly from God and not through Moses. And this is what he says I am the Lord your God. Who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Here's the first commandment. You must not have any other lowercase g god but me. Wait, there are other gods? I've had somebody question me that. If we say Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, that he is the god of all gods, does that mean there are other gods? Well, yes, we create our own gods. And they did then too, they carved them out of stone or, or wood or, or marble or those kind of things and they would put them in their homes or in these little niches that they had in the side of the walls of their homes and they would offer little burnt offerings and sacrifices there. They would also go to the temple cults of their day and age and they would have temples to these different various gods. And God here says, you must not have any other god but me. Second one is this, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children, the entire families affected, even the children of the third and fourth generations of those who rejected me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who will love and obey me and my commands." That's a whole different sermon for a different... So wait a minute. So if my parents sinned, then I'm accountable for their sin. Well, no, there's there's some unpacking that has to be done there. Suffice it to say, let me give you a brief little example. How many of you have seen families, and maybe you've lived in one, where generation after generation... There's a cycle of sinful, horrible, bad behavior that perpetuates, whether it's alcoholism, physical or sexual abuse, or any other th- nor- anything you can think of that continues on, right? Have you seen that? What are the natural consequences of sin? Destruction, death, right? It just it, it sets in motion this perpetual thing. What, that, that motion will continue until the cycle's broken, right? Okay? So Jesus came to break the cycle. Do you understand that? Jesus came to say, you don't have to live this way. Let me show you a better way to live. Let me show you how, how this can be different. He's saying, listen, don't make for yourselves any other idols. And he's even saying, don't, don't draw pictures of me. You can't encapsulate me in an object." I'm not bound to anything. You can read the absurdity all the way through the Old Testament and and how uh, there's mockery from the prophets on behalf of God about how they carry their gods around on the back of mules and donkeys in these carved images. He's like, you can't carry me around. I don't work like that. Okay? Three, you must not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. Okay, what's that mean? If I say GD... Well, that's definitely a misuse of the name. But we usually just set that. That's the only way we, we... GD is the one way. That's what exactly what it's talking about. You know what? They spoke in Hebrew, not English. Okay? What is the misuse of God's name? It's using it in any other way than to address him or address others about him. Okay, Do you understand what I'm saying? Have you ever misused... The word Jesus or God in any other way. Like, oh my goodness. Gosh. Right? Jesus Christ. And you don't mean it because you're talking to him or you're beckoning him to listen to you. Four. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your ox, your donkeys, and other livestock, and any foreigners living among you. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. Remember that you who were once slaves in Egypt, you who were you were once slaves in Egypt but the lord your god brought you into, out with his strong hand and his powerful arm that's why the lord your god excuse me has commanded you to rest on the sabbath day uh, another sermon for another day but the reality is this was a revolutionary idea a revolutionary idea this was a true freedom statement every day was a work day But now God's saying, no, 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 Uh, at least take one day. Even your animals need to rest. The foreigners in your land must rest. Your servants, they're not even to wait on you. They must rest. That is a revolutionary statement. Then let's tick off the rest of these. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. Then you will live long, full life in the land your Lord your God has given you. We can talk about that. Do you honor even if they're dishonorable? There's a way to do that. We are never told to honor them only if they're honorable. We are to honor them. What does honor actually mean? To show them respect. We are to respect even the disrespectful because we are a new creation. We are different people. You must not murder you must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or land, male or female servant, ox or donkey. Have you ever coveted your neighbor's donkey? <laughs> See, it's antiquated. Why do we have to? All right, maybe you don't have an ox or donkey, but do you have a tractor? Do you have, I have a tractor? Do you have a, do you have a car, a truck? Okay. They can't talk about what hadn't been invented yet or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. There's one of those, you know, let's encapsulate everything. All right, I'm giving you some examples, but anything else too, okay? See, these commands bring life. They're not complicated. They weren't meant to be complicated. These were commands God gave, and they were meant to be obeyed, not to find a loophole. They were meant to be obeyed, So that it led them to life. The problem is when we try to find a loophole, our heart and our mind are in the wrong place. So, what leads to death? Let's look at these real quick. Let's look at the adverse. If a person worships any other God but God, they are in essence worshiping that which is either not real or eternal. Worship of anything other than God himself leads to the end result of what that worship entails. If God, capital G-O-D, then life. If God's, or God, lowercase g, then death. Nothing can give you life that is not life-giving, and there is only one life-giving entity the world has ever known, and his name is God, capital G-O-D. If a person makes something to worship out of mere material things, they are in essence not worshiping the true God because God is not made of material things, but the one who made all things that are matter. To worship the creation rather than the creator is to worship that which cannot give life nor bring life. Material things are destined to wither and fade. Thus to worship them is to worship that which must ultimately die. Money, fame, fortune, whatever your aspirations are. If your children are placed in that position of worship, guess what? They are not God. They are bound by the same by the same situation you are in this broken and fallen world? What about your spouse, your significant other? I see a lot of people putting other people on that pedestal or that place. Number three, the name God, I am that I am is a name that connotes the premier existence of the one who is the uncreated creator. It carries with it the meaning beyond mere sentiment. To use use or rather misuse the name of the great I am is to lift up that name in an empty or useless way. The result of this is to treat as dead or meaningless the one whose name is life. I I, I reference a lot of Judaism and and all of that. You can't not when you read the Old Testament. The reason why is because we need to understand the basis of these things for the New Testament. And so Orthodox Jews today, those of the strictest sense will not even utter the name of God, the actual name that God gave Moses in Exodus 3. I am that I am, which is translated as Yahweh, Today you might read some uh, a text from a Jewish Jewish author and they will write the word god G O D with capital G dash D because they won't even spell it out they revere the name so much that they won't even get close to misusing it you understand Sabbath rest was to be observed as a means to focus on the reason for God's creating everything in the first place. All of creation was created to live in God's rest eternally. When you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, the very first verse of Genesis 2, that on the seventh day, God did what? Rested from his work. Because he was super tired and needed a lawn chair. You know, God never needs rest. God never grows weary or tired, nor does he sleep. Why? Because he is the epitome of rest. And so when he finished everything, it meant that it was complete. Do you get that? There was nothing left to do. When he was done, he was done. And now all that that was left is to live in rest. He created a place of rest. Yes, there was work that happened in tending the garden and watching over the animals to be given dominion over them, not domination. But in that work, it was fulfilling, it was productive, it wasn't in vain, and it was restful. Have you ever done something that you were created for and that by the time you're done with it, you're more energized? The time passes and you don't realize how much time has elapsed because you've gotten so caught up in that which you really enjoy that time becomes irrelevant. This is what eternal rest and just a glimpse of it would look like. Fulfilling, complete, utter work that leads us to a place of energy rather than depletion. This is why When Adam and Eve sinned, they got kicked out of the garden. And God said to Adam, Your curse will be that you will work until the soil of the ground to barely scrape by. It will not produce for you the way it does here. It's gonna exhaust you by the sweat of your brow. Number five, if a person dishonors their father and mother, a breakdown in the family structure is capable of destroying a society. Let that set for a minute. See, the honor within a family is so important. Societies that tend to be very strong are those that honor their older individuals. Those that honor the family. Societies that you see devolving into chaos and utter tyranny or anarchy are those that have devalued the family so much or deconstructed the family so much according to what God's standards were to desire to be that there is just utter and complete contempt for anything traditional with regard to the family. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather live in a society where there is stability in the culture because the family has remained intact? Or would you rather live in a culture where the family structure is really just a bygone word or thought and it's every man for himself and every woman for herself? Because that's where we are or where we're headed. Honor your father and mother. It's a, de- it's a devolution of the family. This command doesn't mean that fathers and mothers don't bear a great responsibility in caring for and loving their children, but it does mean that where honor and respect are given, there is greater cause for hope and longevity within a culture. Societies that honor and respect their elders are societies that by and large tend to be more stable, civil, and sane in the long run. This is why God's command here comes with a promise. Did you hear the promise? Then you will live long and full full life in the land the Lord your God has given you. (laughs) If a person murders, obviously death is a result and life is not valued. A person cannot choose life and take a life. And this is at any stage. I know this is so taboo and we can debate till we're blue in the face, when does life begin? But if you found even one single-celled organism on any other planet, we would call it life. What about the multi-celled organism growing in the womb of a woman? When does life begin? Conception. I, I love this, and you can look at this up online. You can say, "Oh, it's a scientific, it's a biological process this, but I think this is so cool. God gives us evidence in his creation to show that he exists because of the imminent design that's there. And you can scoff at that, but I challenge you to dig in and see where the evidence points. But at the moment of conception, this is a biologic kid, if you haven't heard of this before, where the sperm penetrates the lady's egg. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, there's, actual, there's actual like electron microscope um, where you could see that moment happen. Did you know that when, when that lining is broken, there's a flash of a um, visible flash of light around the egg? I'm not joking. Look it up. I've watched it and you can see the actual imagery, and it's just a flash of light. Because, and it's because of some sodium, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is, how cool is it that God, there's a spark of life in that moment. Oh, you're over-spiritualizing it. Okay, whatever. I think it's cool. (laughs) If a person commits adultery, there is death to relationships. There's death to trust. And there's death to human dignity. What is adultery? I don't want to overcomplicate this because this wasn't meant to be complicated, but we try to find, especially in the sexual sins, we love to find loopholes. You know what I mean? We do. Um, What was God's original design for sexuality? One man and one woman. Well, just because he created one man and one woman doesn't mean it's okay or that there's not any other option. No, well, there is a propagation of the species, right? Be fruitful and multiply was one of the commands in the, in the bygone days of the perfect world that God created. But if God created everything in the garden and it was perfect from the very beginning, anything that deviates from God's perfect design is called sin. It's a deviation from what he desired. At the end of each day, what did he say about his creation? It was good, and I've always contended, is God's good best, or is there anything better than God's good? If there is, then it's not good. God's good is always best, and so any deviation from what God's perfect standard was in the perfectness of the garden, that's kind of a litmus test for us to see, well, God, what was God's real, real design? So by this time, you get the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery. Why would they even need to, to know that? Because adultery was happening. Sexual sin was occurring. Don't commit adultery because it kills relationships. It breaks trust and it devalues human dignity. Number eight, if a person steals, there's death to relationships. There's a breakdown of trust and human dignity. If I steal something from you, are you gonna trust me? Are we gonna have a close relationship? <laughs> no, we probably won't, right? So it's a destruction of what God called good. If a person testifies falsely against another person, there's death of character and integrity as well as relationships, trust, and human dignity. If I go around spreading stuff about somebody that's not true, that's bearing false witness. If I stand in a courtroom on a witness stand and say something that's not true about somebody who's being prosecuted or even defended, that's bearing false witness. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes, your no be no. You shouldn't have to go through all these mental hoops to try to prove to somebody you're telling the truth. Lastly, if a person desires, wishes, longs for, craves something to a fault, or detrimentally, especially the property of another person, there is death to the sanctity of the mind, the heart, and the soul. Because this is coveting, right? I may not act on it, but I want what you have. And I want it so bad that it makes me angry that you have it and I don't. What does that do to me? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wanted something so bad that somebody else has that it consumes your mind? It begins to destroy you internally? Coveting is a means by which one uh, by which one degrades the mind with sinful acts that can ultimately lead to action and the death of relationships, trust, and human dignity. I want what you have. And if I want it bad enough, and I allow that desire to so encapsulate me, I may do something about it. And then I go back and I break the murder clause. I mean, I don't murder Santa Claus. That's not what I mean. I murder the, 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 the commandment there. Sorry. I realized how that might have sounded. That could be really bad, right? No, I go back and I break that one. Or I commit adultery because I want your wife, or our, somebody wants, you know, you as a husband. You know what I mean, right? You, you begin to break that because you want it so bad. And I will do whatever it takes to get it because I think that's going to fulfill me. But it ultimately leads to death. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward this morning. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote this. When the author walks onto a stage, the play is over. You, come, you go to a play back in those days, the author or the screenwriter would walk out onto stage at the end and give a great bow because they were the master creator of that play you just saw that's your standing ovation to, Right? He says, when the author walks out onto the stage, the play is over, and God is going to invade, he says, all right. But what is the good of saying you were on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else comes crashing in? This time it will be God without disguise. He's talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, the full embodiment of God And he proved that he was that. And you say, yeah, okay, whatever. Sure, sure, I believe in Jesus. Okay, when he comes again, and literally everything is melting back, and you're like, whoa. Is it just a, yeah, whatever, sure, I believe. Or is it a, yes, I believe. He says, by that point in time, it will be too late to choose which side you're on. That will not be the time for choosing when the sky begins to melt away, the trumpet sounds, and you see Christ coming again, and you realize, okay, my flippant, yeah, I kind of believe, yeah, he's sure he was a real guy and a good teacher and all that, and sure, whatever. Or you're going through the motions here at church and you have everybody else fooled, but you're not living it in your daily life, or what you've hidden in your heart is really death, but not life. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we were really on, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today is the moment. It's your chance to choose the right side. Oh, here we go. The evangelistic message. Jesus is going to ask you to come to Jesus. Brandon's going to ask you to come to Jesus. Yeah, I am. Unabashedly. You know why? Because I believe he is life. In him there is no darkness. I believe as he proclaimed in John 14 that he was the way, the truth, and the life and that no one can come to the Father in heaven but through him. And I unabashedly will say that to my dying breath even if I'm standing in front of a firing squad for proclaiming that. Remember, to not make a choice is to make a choice. It's not about living by a strict set of rules. It's about by living life And obeying the rule giver and saying, I want to obey the rules because I love you. You can wait. You may think you have tons of time left. And that's okay. I'm not going to scare you with tactics like, well, you might pull out onto the highway and get smashed. You might, you might not. You may be given a long, healthy life. But why waste it? on choosing a path that will ultimately lead to death when you can start living life now to the fullest. Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come to give you life abundantly. That life abundantly doesn't start when you die and enter heaven. It starts now. Not bound or encumbered by the sin and the death of this world. So that by the time you do die, the question could be on the lips of others that Paul stated oh death where is your sting oh death where is your victory because it doesn't exist for the one who truly has life in Christ those of you who are watching at home those of you who are here now's the time it's a time to bow before your savior your maker your creator and say I'm done trying to do it my way. My way doesn't always work out the way I anticipate it will or expect, but I'm willing and ready to do something different. I'm willing to lay my life on the line because he laid his life on the line for me. You can come to my right, your left. Somebody will pray with you. If, you don't, if this is new to you and you have no clue what this means, you come to my right, your left, somebody will pray with you. If you're you carrying the burden for somebody else that you know that doesn't believe in Jesus or doesn't have that kind of life, come and pray. Prayer is the root where change begins. You want to pray alone? Come to my left, your right. If you're at home, kneel by your couch, your chair. Don't kneel in your car while it's driving down the road. That could be dangerous. I mean, Jesus could truly take the wheel. I mean, Carrie Underwood's song. But still, don't, don't try that, okay? Find a place to pull over and pray. Let me close with this. Heavenly Father, there's no question in my mind that you're real. We, we aren't called to believe in you with blind faith without question. as i mentioned to our class this morning lord in john or jeremiah 29:13 we will seek you and find you when we seek you with all of our hearts some of us are only seeking you a little bit maybe we're curious but you've promised that you would reveal yourself to us in a way that nobody else can not even a preacher on a stage lead us in the way of life everlasting through your son, Jesus Christ, and bring us to a point where we are fully surrendered to you, heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.